Home ground can mean many things. A place you live, a place you've developed a relationship with over time, or further ranging territory you travel across in your day to day. This is the Rescue Project podcast. In this episode, three stories of care for the land. I'm Gretchen Miller, and the Rescue Project is a collaboration with Landcare Australia and the University of New South Wales, where we think about our unique and personal relationships to the natural world. How and why do we step in and step up to repair it, especially as climate disruption starts to take hold? We're travelling to farm country near Tumut, New South Wales, and then across the Blue Mountains to a hidden valley, and then to the Brisbane suburbs, where a simple pile of grass clippings threatens a small patch of local bush. But first, to farmer Louise Freckleton, who runs a sustainable, ethical sheep farm and also maintains a conservation area. Two-thirds of her farm is boxgum grassy woodland, this is Carrick's and the Ducklings. An agronomist once told us to destroy the Carrick's grassland in our home valley. It's rubbish. You sheep won't eat it. Nuke it, he said. Burn it, then spray it, then burn it again. That'll get rid of it. I thanked him for his time and promptly ignored his professional advice. Carrick's isn't loved around here on the farms of the snowy valleys. It's missing from most farm landscapes now. In fact, it's so uncommon that it's considered an endangered ecological community. Carrick's is its genus name. People call it cutty grass. It's a fitting common name. Run the long straight leaves through your fingers in the wrong direction and you can slice your finger open in one of those deep wounds that takes a second to bleed and an age to stop. Carrick's is a tall and rough tussock-type sedge. It typically grows in the floor of valleys, wherever the water flows. It slows down the water movement through the valley. The dense tussocks hold the water up deflecting its potentially eroding energy. The agronomist was right. Our sheep don't eat it, or at least they don't eat the grass. But in spring, when the growth is fresh and green, the sheep skip from tussock to tussock, sweeping the sticky flowering heads into their mouths with their thick but agile tongues. In autumn and in spring, when our chubby ewes lamb down their tiny babies, they often do so among the Carrick's tussocks, hiding their bright white babies from potential predators. And on a windy day, ewes place their lamb downwind from a clump of Carrick's. In summer, the shade provided by Carrick's tussocks create a microclimate where pockets of green grass can still prosper when the rest of the paddock is brown. Our sheep search between the carracks to find these succulent remnants of spring. In all seasons, carracks provides sheltering habitat for brown quail, golden sister cola and superb wrens. They take to the sky when the dogs play together in a game of leap and chase. Yesterday, while walking with the big dog in the home valley, 
Peppy found a mound of fluffy duck-down feathers. He stuck his long marema snout into it and snuffled. It must have felt lovely on his inquisitive nose, and, to a dog, it probably smelt fabulous as well. Finding this fluffy pile made me find out about wood ducks. They're the ones where the male has that lovely chocolate brown head. Nest in large hollows in eucalypts, usually near water. At Highfield, each year they nest in astonishingly tall twin Blakely redgums that tower over the Carrick's nestled main spring-fed dam. The parent wood ducks line their nest hollow with copious amounts of down that carefully conceal their precious eggs. Incomprehensibly, soon after hatching, the fluffy ducklings launch themselves from their nursery hollow to the ground where the adults lead them to safe, dense vegetation and then onto water. Our carracks provide such protective cover to the newborn fluff bomb ducklings. Each year the numbers of wood ducks increase in the home valley. We are very glad they like carracks as much as we do. You can follow Louise Freckleton and Highfield Farm and Woodland on Facebook if you want to see how the farm develops. Capity is in the shadow of the Blue Mountains and it's been 30 years since restoration plantings there began. The hope is to lure the peripatetic and threatened Regent Honeyeater to stay for a while. In this story... Kate Reed and her son take us to a site they've committed to and it's far from Sydney's inner west where they live. But they've fallen in love with both place and process and they never miss a planting. To the west of Sydney lies the vast and ancient Capity Valley, isolated and slumbering, far from our urban existence. Twice a year my boy and I drive westward, put our hands in the soil and together with a hundred others, plant a forest. In part, the valley is a microcosm of land clearing across the country for agriculture. Denuded paddocks covered in coarse summer grasses under a baking sun. Eroded creek banks, diminished wildlife. But its woodland remnants are also one of the last strongholds for the critically endangered Regent Honeyeater, of which only a few hundred are left in the wild. We plant 3,000 trees at a time, starting at 8am. At 11 o'clock, just as we're flagging, a bus trundles down the drive, disgorging a veritable battalion of Taronga Zoo's youth program kids. They take up their places alongside us, sending a ripple of renewed energy through the early planters. Some years the soil is kind to us, crumbling and forming easily under fingers to accommodate each tree. These years we finish by early afternoon and strut back to the cottages for wine and cheese, cocky with success. Other years the soil is heavy and clayey, rocks so hard the mattock bounces back. Those years planting feels like unfounded hope, and it's only when the cliffs are casting long shadows that the most stalwart planters head home. The restorative nature of replanting the birds' habitat works its own restorative magic on me. 
There's an interconnectedness and a hopefulness to planting trees. My boy has been planting with me since he was three. In the early years, he worked steadily alongside me, nestling tree after tree into its new home with his miniature trowel. Now seven, he darts back and forth to fit in time with the grey-bearded watering crew sitting up front of the ute, yarning with Don, leaping towards me over the furrows from the far off horizon to regale stories of refill adventures from the dam. Such joy and expanse in that run, freed from the constraints of inner-city fence lines and roads. It's easy to identify previous plantings dotted through the valley, from tiny saplings to trees that look like they've been there forever, and I marvel anew at the volunteer power that has doggedly planted 125,000 trees and shrubs over 30 years. Over 260 hectares have been replanted. I like to think of my boy in decades to come, taking his children and grandchildren to see the groves that we planted, from time to time pointing out the flashes of bright yellow, black and grey of honey eaters ducking and dipping amongst foliage. Tree planting gives you that kind of mad hope, all because my boy learnt to put his hands in the soil beside other hands, planting out a forest. You can find more details about how to join in the tree planting at Capertee in our show notes. But before you go, one last story. The Brisbane suburbs might not be as romantic as a green and beautiful valley, but they're equally special to Jill Bauer, who decided not to wait for the council to act. She took on a simple pile of grass clippings that were threatening a patch of local bush. And she won. I enjoy walking through my suburb past the bush. It's a chance to get some exercise. I watch the changing seasons emerge through the early morning sunlight. As I walk, I breathe in smells of the bush. The perfume of honey from the ironbark tree blossoms. The wattle trees are alive with splashes of yellow worms. The delicate and colourful bursts of grevillea spikes and the specks of tiny red flowers drip from the bottle brush trees. Suddenly they erupt with a chorus of lorikeets. Their wings paint the sky in colour. The joyful experience is short-lived. I see another mound of dumped grass clippings. Perhaps these people don't understand that grass clippings contain seeds and nutrients that do more harm than good in the bush. Over the summer, the piles of grass clippings begin to grow bigger. The grass and weeds spread further down the slope. The cyclone season has begun. The slow-moving creek had changed into a wild river, sharing the seeds of summer downstream. The following year, the weeds had multiplied and gradually began to take over the sunlit patch of grass, where the swamp wallabies would graze in the late afternoon. The small wattle trees slowly become strangled by corky passion pines and were withering away before they could yield flowers for the possums, birds and insects. I contacted the council hoping they would take an interest. A year later nothing had happened. The corky passion vine had started curling around the tree trunks. Time was not an option. 
So armed with my gardening gloves, I joined a group of land care members and decided to whack some weeds before the summer heat returned. We spent four hours pulling up the weeds and untangling the trees from corky passion vines. A bit of TLC transformed this mass of uncontrollable weeds back to original bush. So far, the weeds haven't returned and the area is once again providing food for its native inhabitants. I feel that a positive change has occurred because no more weeds have been dumped. Perhaps the gardener had seen our tireless work and saw the 26 garbage bags of weeds that we removed. Maybe the gardener started to appreciate the bush. I arrived home with a bird of paradise plant that I rescued. I found a tiny green frog curled up inside the plant's leaves. I released it into my garden and it hopped away. It had its freedom. Jill Bow there. The Rescue Project is produced and presented by me, Gretchen Miller, with sound engineering from Judy Rapley. And special thanks to the University of New South Wales and to Landcare Australia and all the storytellers who have taken part. If you'd like to read any more of these beautiful and unique stories, or if you have one to share yourself, please go to landcareaustralia.com.au slash rescue. There's also a link in our show notes. Do leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. And check out our other episodes on animals, on history, art and loving a tree, and on the Atherton Tablelands, where we take a longer look at what a remarkable community is doing. I'll see you next time. The Climactic Collective. This show is produced by Hear Media, a boutique audio agency in Narm, Melbourne. To learn more and get in touch, head to hearmedia.studio. That's H E R E media.studio.